0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the green room of Disrupt TV. We've been talking about pickleball strategies. Uh, we're not sure exactly <laughs> what we're going to do with that on the show, but uh, thank you for all being here. Uh, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar. He's over here, our amazing producer, L, And of course, I'm Ray Wong. Uh, we're happy to have you here. We've got some amazing guests. And as usual, we obviously introduce everybody in the green room in reverse order. We'll start with William, and we'll go to Don, and then we'll head on to uh, Mike and Rahul. So so William, Will tell us, William, tell us where you're calling in from, what are we talking about today?
1: I'm calling in from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and we're talking about our new book, uh, Bridge Builders, and uh, also done a lot of work over the last uh, 25 years on a digital transformation of, of government. So
2: you could maybe get into that too.
0: Very, very cool, I'm looking forward to that. Don, welcome. Where are you coming in from? What are we talking about?
2: Good afternoon and uh, welcome from Austin, Texas. I'm talking to you from downtown and interested today in talking about the the strategies, not only of trying to find ways of making government work effectively through bridge builders, but also how we can redefine accountability to make sure it fits well for all the challenges we've got for the 21st century.
0: Very cool. It's ATX, he's keeping it weird. All right. (laughs) <laughs> Mike, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm coming in from a small town in Australia called uh, Brighton, And, uh, we're going to be talking about, I guess, cloud efficiency and Philips, uh, especially when
0: it regards to data efficiency. Very cool. Thanks for coming in from so far down under and, uh, Rahul, where are you coming in from?
4: I'm coming in from Silicon Valley, Mountain View, California. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Um, you know, excited to be here. I'm going to be talking about you know cloud efficiency and AI efficiency and AI safety more from a perspective of enterprise adoption.
0: Very very cool. Well, from Bayside to Mountain View, we've got it covered, coast to coast. Thank you very much, and of course, we'll turn it back to you, Al. Let's kick off the show.
4: All right, three, two. One.
5: Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter, X, at Disrupt TV show. Send send us your questions. And Ray, myself and our guests will do our best to answer them live during the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray's a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, and CNBC. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top features to follow on Twitter at rwang 0 Welcome Ray Wong to The Shroud TV.
0: Hey, thanks a lot. Here with Bala
5: Ashtar, the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of
0: The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. He's a new book, Boundless, which you all have to get, is a new mindset for unlimited business success, and it's going to be available this September and can be pre-ordered today on Amazon and wherever books are sold. But it's not about that. It's our amazing capabilities. And if you think about what Vala does, he's got executives around the world paying attention to every one of his insightful tweets or posts that we're calling them now. Of course, we're not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce. You can find him on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and writing insightful analyses on ZDNet. We've got amazing guests uh, for the show. We've got four, and we're gonna kick off with two. So who do we have, Balá? What are we talking about?
5: It's our privilege to have two amazing experts uh, as our first segment. Raul Panella, co founder CEO CEO of Gran- Gran- sorry, Granica. <laughs> uh, Raul is uh, co founder and CEO of Granica, the world's first AI efficiency platform, which is on a mission to make AI affordable, accessible, and safe to use. Prior to founding Granica, he served as director of storage and integration at Pure Storage. Raul's uh, dedication to technological innovation extends beyond Brannica. He helps shape the future of cloud financial management as a governing board member of the FinOps Foundation under the Linux Foundation. A multidisciplinary academic, Raul's research spans mathematics, information theory, machine learning, and distributed systems. He holds a portfolio of patents in computational statistics and data compression. As an angel investor, Raul supports emerging tech startups pushing boundaries in AI, robotics, and machines and medicine. Welcome Raul to Disrupt TV.
4: Thank you very much, appreciate it.
5: Great to have you. Uh, In addition, we have Mike Fuller, CTO at the FinOps Foundation, a nonprofit program under the Linux Foundation. Uh, Mike's responsibilities include the best practices and content produced by the Foundation along with leading the APJ community. Mike has co-authored both editions of the Cloud FinOps book published by O'Reilly Media alongside J.R. Stormont, widely regarded as the FinOps book. Mike recently became the steering committee chair alongside members from Google, Microsoft, and Focus Project, working on open specifications for cloud billing data. Previously to the FinOps Foundation, Mike was a principal engineer at Atlassian for over 10 years, where he formed a dedicated FinOps team, including uh, data engineers, analysts, and FinOps practitioners. Welcome, Mike, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thanks for dialing in from literally the other side of the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's ahead of us, right? So he's already in the future. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, gentlemen, welcome. Hey, the question to you guys first is, what is FinOps? And then we should really talk about where FinOps strategy comes into place, uh, especially given where we are with cloud costs, overridges, tiering, dedicated, not dedicated instances, cloud management, people moving stuff back and repatriating cloud. It's it's crazy out there. But let's talk about FinOps strategy first. What is it? And of course, why are people jumping into this?
3: Yeah, so I think um, the big thing about FinOps is that it's a cultural change within the organization and the way that everybody is approaching their cloud spend. Um, the, the, the key here is, is it's not really just about saving money. It's about making the right decisions for the organization around the cloud usage and trying to make those, those, uh, near real time decisions around data driven, uh, you know, uh, insights th- about the value you're going to get from the cloud usage you have. And so basically trying to get, you know, the most value for every dollar you spend in cloud.
5: Can you yeah. expand a bit more on the culture piece?
3: Yeah, so I think that, the, you know, we have uh, one of the core principles is around that everybody's taking um, ownership of their cloud spend. And so mm. in in a world of uh, the data center, you have these you know, upfront sort of conversations with finance and procurement teams to sort of align on what you're spending. And then after that, that sort of conversation has occurred, it's very you know low impact, the decisions that are made daily on, on the consumption of that equipment. But when you move into the cloud, those conversations sort of stop happening because you're you're know more freely able to make these micro exchanges with your cloud service provider, and you know it's so quickly the, com- the company sort of gets a little bit out of sync about what's been expected to be spended to where the, you know where their expenditure sort of heads, and so you're trying to bring to a world where there, there's these thoughts about what we're going to get from these um, cloud, cloud resources and whether or not it is good value for the business and how do we make those, those teams that have you know, t- t- typically operated in silos start to actually collaborate together on, um, you know, on a more frequent basis to, to be aligned across the business. And so that cultural change is that real thinking about each other, about the, the overall goal of the business, not just your, your individual sort of area of expertise.
4: So yes, I will go real quick. Um, let me jump in real quick. Mike, um, you know, terrific to have you, uh, you know again over here chatting with you. Um, you know, if you really think about it, right, maybe the last decade uh, spoiled us a little bit, right? As, as enterprises, where for every problem, right, mostly you're throwing money at it, right? And you're hoping that, okay, you know, the problem will be magically solved. Right. So this notion of efficiency was not top of mind. The notion of growth was top of mind. Right. Now we are in the age where you have to think about efficient growth. Right. You cannot just basically grow for the sake of growing. You also have to think about efficiency. And what does efficiency really mean? It goes back to the fundamental principles of, you know, unit economics. Right. I don't want to spend ten dollars to earn one dollar. Right. That's a way (laughs) where I can actually like, you know, turn the company down. How do you actually like spend two dollars, make four dollars or make multiple factors of those dollars that you're spending? That's efficiency. Right. And how do you do that? I would say is a core principle or one of the core principles of FinOps. Right. In order to actually spend the money that you're spending, in order to actually derive the value that you're driving and in order to move the business forward and actually provide impact to the world. What are the principles that you have to take as a culture, as a company culture? and embed that across various different disciplines within a company, right? That's, I would say, the core of FinOps and FinOps Foundation and what Mike and the team uh, with JR Stormont and others, you know, including myself, are trying to do. And
5: so this, is, this is beyond COO, CFO, guiding principles. These are guiding principles for all line of business owners, anyone investing in cloud um, uh, to, to really think to think about this collectively in terms of what you talked about, a, a decade of efficiency. That's yeah, I would,
4: I would completely agree with that statement, right? And one way to sort of also think about this is, again, going back to first principles. Again, I'm a math, mathematician. <laughs> so I like to think from first principles perspective. And if you really think about it, right, this whole notion of shift left, right, uh, which, you know, is, is kind of, you know, grown into like, you know, hyperbolic proportions right? It's not a really radical mindset change, right? Ship left has always been the case, like if you really think about debugging a problem, right? You're writing a code, you're writing program. If you actually discover the bug in production, it's gonna impact the most. So how early can you actually detect it, right? What are the tools that you need to build in order for developers as they're writing the code, they can actually debug, you know, the code that they're actually writing and things of that nature, right? What what I hope and what I think is going to basically materialize in in, in terms of efficiency is bringing that shift left strategy to this FinOps, you know, sort of you know organization principles as well. So what does that mean? So when I'm writing code, when I'm writing a line of code or when I'm writing a function call, right? I don't necessarily just have to think about performance and latency and how efficient that piece of code is, but I also have to think about what the cost impact of this would look like. Right. So I would say, like, I think those are the principles that, you know, essentially derive these line of business owners to take essentially those things and cultivate that mindset shift across the organization. It's no longer, I would say, a CEO, CFO, COO mandate. It's a complete cultural shift of not just top down, but bottoms up as well.
5: So who's yeah. the exec sponsor? Who's the exec sponsor that Granica and FinOps and Foundation? Who, is, it, is it is it the CIO? Is it is it? Is it the CEO? Uh, is it the head of DevOps? Who's, who's the person that you partner with to, to bring this knowledge and this set of guiding principles so that everyone understand the unit costs and the economics of maximizing efficiency?
3: We see FinOps teams um, sit under either the, the CIO, CTO or the, or the CFO side of the business, but there's a, a definite uh, need for a dotted line reporting across the two because you're basically impacting both sides of the house in, in this practice. Um, and I guess to the point, like, we're, just, we're trying to get the right data in front of the engineer. I don't think engineers ever go out with the intent of overspending, right? They're, they're, they're just, it's not a consideration in, in no, the day job and so we're just basically making sure that 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 the goals of both sides of those houses are understood at the time that those decisions are being made in a way that they're, they're you know informed with the right amount of data so that they can make good decisions and healthy decisions
0: yeah you guys have six uh principles right if i remember so one of them is like everyone has to work together some collaboration uh people take personal ownership uh take advantage of the variable cloud costs uh make sure that decisions are value driven the business decisions uh, build a centralized team, uh, FinOps, and get to timely information and insights. I, I think that's what it was. There's six, six something like that. Uh, when you think through those principles, right, there's also some steps that people can take in terms of maximizing the efficiency uh, and high-impact benefits of their cloud resources. What do you have to do? How do you get started? Because we've seen a lot of people... Do some crazy things we have people like taking down their io cost used to be a thousand dollars a month to like a dollar 69 right i mean they're they're, they're getting there it's, it's pretty incredible the percentage of you know efficiency that's coming from these fin ops teams
3: yeah so i think like you, you start with good planning like being proactive and thinking about the the cost of what you're doing is so if you're, if you're designing something new thinking about that cost and Calculating it out, and so this is where your your uh, billing data expert within the organization, someone who really understands how these things are uh, priced and, and how to calculate them correctly, comes into um, into things. And then start by designing lean, and then growing into it. It's one of, one of the things that you get from being in the cloud is that you can you know start small and grow bigger as you need it. And then um, not everything needs to be a, you know, built like a Porsche. You, you, you basically, you can sort of set some constraints. Like some of your services are definitely are business critical and they need to be the high, highly redundant, highly um, performant. But, um, you know, there are services, you know, in your mix that are the tier two and tier three services that you should be designing to be having less redundancy in them and, and um, you know, taking advantage of being able to be less expensive there because you don't actually need every you know, every tick box ticked. Um, and then just making sure you have those aligned expectations that that when you're being asked to develop a feature that that also is um, understood that that feature potentially has a cost involved and so being uh, you know aligned across the groups of, of what that looks like when when this thing hits hits the ground in, in production and then uh, lastly just validate that you know your assumptions uh, come to fruition that you can't just Throw it into production and then think, well, we did all the calculations ahead of time. So we don't don't need to look. You don't want to find out a couple of weeks later that it didn't quite pan out how you thought it was going to.
5: Mike, how long for a small mid-sized enterprise, if they don't have a good cost model to, to develop one? Is it weeks? Is it can it be done within a quarter? Uh, is as long as you yeah. have dedicated resources?
3: Yeah, so I think like there's a there's a bit of a misconception at the moment that you need like these. Dedicated team in order to do FinOps, um, and really reality is is w- what we're trying to do is get um, you know maybe this virtual team for, for small organizations where you're picking someone in the engineering side, someone in the finance side, and you're bringing them together and having intentional conversation around FinOps, um, you know, on, and, and as your cloud footprint grows and the complexity of your cloud footprint grows, so in more right. teams, more different services uh, deployed more more you know globally. You're going to start to add more and more time to that conversation. Mm. And then just making sure that, that both sides are, are hearing each other as far as what they're, what they're going towards. And everyone understands who's taking responsibility for different elements. So, um, And I don't think you need to go from zero to hero overnight. Like You can yeah. start having very positive impact by just starting that conversation and deciding on a few things around efficiency day one. And um, you know, so and, and over and over time, you'll see that grow and continue. We saw uh, Adobe spoke at the X this year about how ten years plus into their journey, they're still generating you know large positive impacts that is actually driving their innovation. And so, you know, That's this awesome. doesn't have to happen you know quickly and overnight. It can just constantly be being a positive uh, influencer.
0: Oh, it makes a lot of sense. So, so to both question to both of you: How are you guys working together? uh putting granica and FinOps together uh are you trying to solve a certain problem around data efficiency are you trying to solve something different in tr- from a cultural issue so uh what's what's that partnership look like
5: and can you tie it to your mission granica's mission is to increase the signal to noise ratio of information and thus make ai more accessible more affordable and safer yep. to use so can you tell us how your partnership is allowing you to live your mission
3: so the foundation is all about enhancing the practitioner and, and, and helping them with their day job and so the, we have these working groups that come together and help sort of capture the stories of success the stories of failure the the, the best practices if you will of how to do and how to approach and how to think about um, you know cost efficiency and cost in general for cloud and so having the, uh, you know, companies like Granica involved in those conversations means that we're getting not just the, the individual practitioner's point of view, but actually real good understanding of what opportunities are there, you know, across the different tooling sets that are available to them. Um, and so from the foundation's perspective, we're trying to align the thinking of the practitioner to the right direction and, and make it so that they understand the their, what the pathway is to be doing uh, good, good FinOps within an organization. And then we you know, throw it over, I guess, with the vendors to take that conversation from, you know, the the theoretical and and the guidance to actual real tactical things on the ground that they're they're working with their customers with.
4: Yeah, um, I think, um, you know, one, one completely agree with Mike. One way that, you know, I would say like Granica is kind of influencing this notion of FinOps is primarily looking at the notion of, okay, what are the kind of current problems that enterprises are experiencing day to day? Right. And we're having, you know, tens of conversations every single day with different sort of lines of businesses uh, within a company and also across companies across different verticals. Right. So we're able to, I would say, like synthesize that information and figure out what are the kind of tangible solutions that Granica and companies like Granica can provide to the world. Right. And then take those learnings, take those frameworks, if you will, and take those architectures, reference architectures and flow that back to the community. Mm -hmm. Right. So. My sort of, you know, philosophy in terms of like partnering with Phenops Foundation is to basically just do that, take the reference architectures, take the frameworks, give that back to the community and the community will again kind of, you know, bless us back with respect to, you know, feedback and make our products better, so to speak. Right. So at the end of the day, one one quick anecdote or analogy that I want to take over here is if you really think about, you know, this news that has been making the rounds lately, right, where. You know, OpenAI apparently spending around $700,000 or a million dollars per day, and it's going to go bankrupt in like 2024 or whatever that might be. Who knows what the balance sheet looks like? Let Microsoft and themselves kind of take care of it. But if <laughs> you really think about it, I would actually like, you know, argue that $700,000 per day, depending on how crazy the traffic is. And if you're mm. looking at chat ChatGPT as one of the fastest growing applications in the world in the last like, you know, decade or so. Right. I would say 700,000 is actually on the lowest ballpark. <laughs> so one of the things that probably keeps OpenAI folks up at night is just cost efficiency, per se. And one of the things that they usually look at right, in terms of innovation is algorithmic innovation. right? So building great models, infrastructure innovation. So taking GPUs, TPU architectures. And then the third one, the most critical element is data itself. right? data basically has gravity it has a potential of actually influencing your future directions which also means that you're collecting more and more data to actually make your models better so data becomes a fundamental unit of ai right because you're collecting more and more data real world data per se right you also have to think about is it actually solving the problem which means that you're adding more simulation data so av companies autonomous vehicle companies that we work with right can only drive so many miles per day. They rely on simulation data, and sometimes simulation data is factors more than real-world data. So all of this is to basically say that data is a fundamental unit of AI and how you do computing, that is going to be the fundamental problem as we sort of you know, live in this age of computing. And the cost it takes for you to store the data, for you to access the data, for you to move the data becomes a very fundamental bottleneck, right? So that's where Granica is looking at you know, sort of looking at the data pre-processing layer and trying to figure out if you can focus on the fundamental unit of AI, fundamental unit of computing data itself, and if you can make the data itself much more better, higher quality, higher relevance, Mm. you know, more valuable, then we could potentially influence AI abstraction of the AI, you know, upstream to make it more accessible, affordable, and safe to use.
5: How much did the OpenAI announcement in November of last year change this reference architecture that you you speak of? Did, did, did this generative AI storm that, you know, 59 days, 100 million users and everybody in the enterprise now has a gen AI strategy that's defining their roadmap. How much did that impact cloud storage solutions and the reference architecture that you and FinOps Foundation are are sharing amongst the community?
4: Yeah, I think... You know uh, again kind of a fundamentalist point of view (laughs) i advocate strongly that before a company has an ai strategy they need to have a data strategy (laughs) right before before even thinking about llms and thinking about you know pocs you know around gen ai you really have to think about okay what is the data that i'm actually storing right am i going to introduce any bias because remember machine learning models ai models are just average approximations Right. So if you have a lot of bias already in your data sets, then it's going to average across those biases and then produce results. That's what hallucinations and things of that nature come into play. The second aspect of this is also privacy. Right. If you really have a lot of sensitive data that you're storing behind the scenes, you cannot really use that for machine learning training or AI training in general. So what is your data privacy a data protection sort of an angle? The third angle is Do I actually have enough data to begin with to solve the problem to make, you know, move the needle for my business? Right. I just don't want to basically like put something, you know, in POC and realize that it's not going to scale to production, which is right. most of the sort of, you know, uh, stuff that is happening today. Right. Most of the projects are in this POC scope. Everybody's super excited. But when you actually like look at it solving real world problems when moving the needle for my business, it fails flat. Right. So how do you, how do you look at again those scale yep, privacy? Yep, yep. You know, relevance to business, those are the things that I would say like companies have to look at. So, you know, that's how we think about it. And that's how we advocate to the world. So
0: okay. Rahul, that's an amazing. Oh, that's I was a, just to.
5: Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Rahul, I was going to say that's an amazing perspective. I was going to go to Mike and, and, and say, well, how do we get started? And what do you measure like in terms of knowing how well you're doing? So Rahul setting the benchmark. We're going to all steal his template. We're going to all learn from him, right? <laughs> and contribute back into the foundation. And then we're going to be like, hey, how do we get started? And what do we measure on? So Yeah, so I,
3: I spoke at uh, FinOpsX this year around education and enable programs being the, the sort of core key element that that drives uh, FinOps success within an organization. And m- the main thing there is, is just making sure that everybody understands what their role is in FinOps and what FinOps means for the organization. Um, We've just recently published a uh, one of our working groups put out a FinOps asset on FinOps.org around KPIs, and so they've been you know mm-hmm. collaborated together to come up with what are those measures both both looking at uh, the measuring of the the cloud efficiency itself, but also looking at measuring the the effectiveness of your FinOps team within the organization. And so there's a a handful of uh, KPIs being published there with some thinking. And then on the FinOps framework itself, we have uh, capabilities, and these are sort of areas of functional activity, and each and every one of those has a measure of success. And so combining both improvement in your measure of success on an individual capability with then seeing the impact that that's having in those high-level KPIs. Um, that sort of echoes back on that everyone taking ownership of their cloud usage. That, that real success here is just making sure that everyone understands that, that they are the deciders of the company's expenditure when it comes to cloud, and then having them involved in the conversation and having them consider it to the com, uh, conversation. As they're making those decisions, and that um, that basically we just want to get to a world where cost is just another metric for engineers. That, that it's just part of that that design decision, part of that deployment um, considerations that's happening, and um, that that we are seeing those conversations happen. That when when a product leader is asking for a new feature, it comes with the conversation of cost. Um, and and when an engineer is implementing a feature, they they are then under, they can understand the, the constraints that they're meant to be operating within, and
0: then they're targeting for
5: that. I love
0: infinite open joins. Come on. <laughs> uh,
5: well, no, I, I can tell you as a small cloud company that I work for, uh, these discussions happen on a daily basis, um, daily basis. And it's with our CTO, the highest level folks in our company. Uh, so it's not part of the the rhythm of how we design and bring products and services to market. I'm wondering... And this is my final question. Do you, do you have a sense of, Mike or Raul, what percentage of the Fortune 1000 have mature FinOps capabilities in place? Uh, and, and where do you see the adoption of FinOps in the Fortune 2000 in, in, in the near future?
3: So I know that uh, the, the stat that we have is as far as participation in the FinOps Foundation is, is uh, 88% of the Fortune 50. Uh, wow. At the recent FinOps X conference, I think we had uh, 36 of the Fortune 50 in attendance at the conference. So, wow. um, But uh, I guess I'm looking at the wider, you know, Fortune 2000 or even just companies at large. I, I think that FinOps in some shape or form for every organization just makes sense. Like, effectively, FinOps wasn't sort of invented in a vacuum. The way we went about it was we we went to companies that had good success with cloud expenditure and went, what did you do? And what we realized was that the, the sort of solution was quite often the same actual solution. And when you bring the people together to Not talk great. about what they have built, they're like, oh, we did the same thing. And so what, we've, what FinOps is, is effectively the natural progression for an organization that has cloud expenditure. We just wanted to skip all of the potholes that everybody had to yeah. you know, fall in, in order to realize they needed to implement a, a FinOps culture within their organization. So sort of you know, basically pave the road and not nice and smooth, and show the path so that companies can sort of naturally move into a space where they have good, you know, FinOps cultures versus doing it as a reactive to to all of the you know potholes that you hit along the way.
0: Well, this um, is great. We're advancing the future of DevOps with a finance lens and activating a movement and community. We're here with Rahul Panola, co-founder and CEO of Granica, and Mike Fuller, CTO at the FinOps Foundation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank
5: you
2: both
0: Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. Thank you Happy Friday. Thank you.
5: love first principle mathematics applied to robust solutions and the cost the cost uh, opportunities or efficiency opportunities are enormous um, you know and you can now put those potential wasted expenses towards uh, accelerating your innovation engine. okay we have uh, this is our clean up hitter spot where we bring big-thinking, extraordinary guest to hit a grand slam, and there's no exception here. I want to introduce our our next two guests. We have William Eggers, uh, executive director of the Deloitte Center for Government Insights and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. William is the author uh, or co-author of numerous books, including Delivering on Digital, the Innovation and Technology that are Transforming Government, the Solution Revolution, and Washington Post bestseller, If We Can Put a Man on the Moon. William's uh, commentary has appeared in dozens of major media outlets, including New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. He's here today with his co-author to talk about Bridge Builders. You can follow William on Twitter at w d eggers e g g e r s. Welcome, William, to the Shop TV. It's so great to be with you today. Thank you, sir. And uh, uh, William's co-author, we have uh, Donald Kettle, author of Bridge Builders. Donald is Professor Emeritus, former dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland and a fellow at National Academy of Public Administration. Donald was previously the Sid Richardson professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's dialing in from Austin today. Donald's books include most recently The Divided States of America and Can Governments Earn Our Trust? You can follow Don on Twitter at Don Kettle, D-O-N-K-E-T-T-L. Welcome, Don, to Disrupt TV.
2: It's great to be with you here.
5: Thank you, sir.
0: Hey, we're really excited to have you, given the uh, current political environment, given the sense of gloom and doom, things that are unable to be done, right? This topic can be, cannot be more timely. So how does bridge building factor into broader government reform initiatives, especially given that the extremes on both ends seem to have a dominance on the conversation, the mind sure, and what's happening in the media? And you know, no one ever gets excited about being a moderate. No, that never <laughs> happens, right? I <So>, thought <laughs> about that.
2: You know, it's it's a tough one out there because people on the right and on the left end up spending so much time shooting at each other that they forget to spend time and making sure that what the people out there want is what they get. And the biggest problem that we see, and this is really why we wrote the book, is that uh, the government programs are getting more and more and more complex And that making them work involves more and more and more complex relationships. And Too often we tend to approach the process of delivering goods and services in in ways that are obsolete. We, We tend to think about government as a as a kind of vending machine where we we put the money in the top and push the button and wait for the services to come out the bottom and then wonder why things don't work, because that's simply not the way that the whole machinery of government works any longer. And
1: I would just add to Ray, uh, you know, Don and I have been in the business of improving government uh, when you combine it for about 75 years and uh, now combined, and really focused on implementation. How do you get big things done in government? Uh, we've both, we've probably written dozens of uh, books on that subject. And when you look at the national discourse it's all about policy 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 or polarization and there's just not enough attention focused on how do you solve these problems and how do you do the implementation uh my good friend and i'm sure you know her jen palka also has a a new book out on decoding america where she focuses on all that from a digital standpoint and and we're focusing broader and if you really want to focus on actually getting big things done in government the way government works today is not through kind of a siloed hierarchical approach it's through these ecosystems through these very complex networks so how do you do that well Um, whether it's the dealing with the homelessness issue or climate action or broadband access these are all through very complicated sophisticated networks and this book is about how do you actually do that we supply over 100 different strategies both of us have worked on this topic for over two decades and so we really think it fits the moment right now whether it's you looking at the fires in maui whether you're looking at the shortage of cancer drugs the train derailment in ohio the migrant housing crisis they're all really the same labor or the same problem, which is how do you coordinate these very con- involved to realize a mission outcome?
5: Describe the title for us, Bridge Builders. I think Ray and I in the world of enterprise software are bridge building, but, but I'm not sure. Can you tell us? Uh, clearly, you two are bridge, bridge builders with dozens of books and you know combined 70 plus years of experience helping improve government and government services. But who are bridge builders and what do they do?
2: Yeah, the, the core thing that we discovered at the very, very beginning when we went out to look at what it is that actually works in terms of delivering high quality goods and services is that we've got all these complex systems where there's no problem that any organization can control or manage any longer. It's kind of the basic proposition that we started with. There, There's no problem that matters that any one organization can control. So now what do you do? Yeah. And the answer is that the solutions are there, but to make them work requires weaving the different elements, the different kinds of capacities, problem solving abilities together from different organizations, sometimes different levels of government, sometimes different sectors of society, even even sometimes different governments in different continents. And if to be able to do that, you need to find a way to bring those pieces together. So how does that work? And what we discovered is that it's very hard to hardwire those collaborations into place. But what you can do is to have people who are good at being able to, to make those kind of connections. And those are the people in the book that we explore as bridge builders, the people who are who are great at being able to bring together the different competencies and different organizations that are required to get the job done. Sometimes it's it's not the same set of competencies and to deal I'll, with any problem, but I'll it's a matter of trying I'll- to figure out how to get at it. Sorry, Don.
5: Go ahead, William. You, William, you were saying?
1: So I'll, I'll give you a bridge builder. Huh? I'm sure both of you know uh, quite well. Uh, Todd Park, uh, very prominent player in Silicon Valley. After the healthcare. Got of uh, You know, opening the website, the disaster of it, yeah. uh, we need to figure out how to do digital better and do procurement better. Uh, put Todd Park on it, and Todd said, you know what we need to do is we need to bring the best, best minds from Silicon Valley, from Austin, Seattle, to looking at how we just from all over the country, including Mikey Dickerson, Jen Palka, his deputy CTO, and others to really figure out how to do digital government better and build those bridges across the sectors because with the acknowledgement that there's always more innovation outside an organization than inside of it. So how do we spin all that innovation into government and how do we work across the sectors to do this better? And we have dozens of bridge builders uh, in our book all the way going all the way back to Claire Barton and her work of uh, founding the American <laughs> Red Cross And what we need is not hundreds, thousands, but millions more of these individuals inside and outside government to really solve America's biggest challenges today.
5: Uh, The the web is 30 years old, uh, 1993. Who's the greatest bridge builder of the last 30 years? Do you guys have you do you have a ranking? Will you have the 2024 <laughs> top 50 bridge builders? For, for,
0: forget
5: bridge about building. thinkers 50. I want Don and William to create their own annual list of bridge builders, uh, so we can celebrate them. But yeah,
0: run an award against that. You know, yeah. have a scholarship. But you know. But is there
5: an agreement in terms of who is who? Who? Who do you think? Who is the?
0: Or organizations like the problem solvers caucus, right? That yeah. could be a good
2: one. some of that, you know, that's it's such a great question, but it's it's like asking us to choose among our children because we love them <laughs> all. One of the things that's fascinating here. I have more is, children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But you know, one of the things that's great is that uh, it, it's not like there's just one or two. There the, the deeper that we dug, the more that we found. And there's just a, a great collection of people. There they're people like Fat Allen who uh, we may remember back in the days after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans and everybody was trying to figure out why can't we find a way to be able to solve the problem. And it turned out that the biggest problem that we had to solve was that the first phase was simply trying to, to solve the problem of the hurricane in New Orleans by trying to manage agencies. That just didn't work. We we had to try to solve the problem for people. And Pat Allen came to the scene, was appointed by the president to be the, the the chief response officer. He stood up on a desk the first morning he got there saying, you know what? I want you to treat everybody you encounter as if they were a member of your family. And if anybody gives wow. you any guff, if anybody gives you any problem, I've got your back. I mean, that's wow. that, two things. And it just transformed the way in which things happened immediately at that point. Or, or you get uh, the, the back at the beginning stages of COVID. We had a problem trying to figure out what what is this thing? How can we measure it? How fast Mm. is it spreading? Mm. And Beth Blower, who is a a good friend of both of ours, who worked at Johns Hopkins University, uh, was looking at the possibility of a trip to India. And she was hearing the story about this, this sort of weird disease that seemed to be sweeping the rounds. And so she was trying to figure out, is it safe to go? And instead of going, she said, "I'm not so sure, but maybe you ought to stay home and find a way of measuring what's happening." And and the the Johns Hopkins website, which by the time it was finally closed down had literally billions of hits to be able to track the spread of COVID around the world, wow. was created by by a person who's and a team that she was able to gather around her that helped us to try to, to measure what was happening and try to drive responses in ways that turn out to be incredibly effective. Okay. And just there's a list of one person after another in all this that is just truly remarkable. Amazing. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I love that idea
1: of creating an annual list. There's so many lists that exist, but I- that this, is this is I, a meaningful list. This is a meaningful list. A really meaningful list, and I think we should do it. I, I want to just you. give a couple more names. Um, Former Unilever CEO, Paul Pullman. Oh, Uh, amazing, amazing. Paul, in his his new book, which we have the same editor at HBR, uh, he played an absolutely pioneering role in getting the business community to focus more time and resources on sustainability when no one else was talking about that. Uh, We have former Houston mayor, Annalise Parker, who employed a bridge building model to organize Houston's battle against homelessness, which a decade later has reduced homelessness by 63% in Houston at the same time where it was going up everywhere else around the country, including in uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And we're an
0: unzoned city, and And that makes that even more interesting, right? There's no zoning in Houston.
1: (laughs) No, and and, and actually, I I will say that that helped um, helped because they were able to... Uh, they're able to get 25,000 people into permanent housing, over three-fourths of whom stayed, were still there after, after a year. And because they didn't have zoning and a lot of restrictions and so on that you see in the San Francisco area, they're able to build more easily and more quickly than in many other cities around the country.
2: And let me add one nugget one, to that, example. which is really important, one fascinating nugget in Houston. And that is to be able to make this work, to be able to have that kind of dramatic reduction in homelessness, they brought together more than 100 different nonprofit organizations to be able to make things work. And so with just trying to do it in onesies and twosies would not have worked, 100 different organizations that were woven together as a team, and that's what really produced the results.
5: I recently found out that World Central Kitchen employs 70 people on their staff, but they can deliver a million meals a day. So Imagine. what Chef Jose Andreas has done in terms of a f- funding the local restaurants during disaster situations, and paying local uh, residents to be part of the solution in terms of delivering food at scale, uh, you know, I don't know if he would qualify for a bridge builder, but absolutely, you know, I think of him as what an amazing like distribution at scale beyond anything you could imagine i think, people we've, on I think a we've got an committee.
0: organizing committee here for the award <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we, can, we can do the general award we'll do the, yeah. each one by industry right to kind of talk about it you can, you can do it by geography kind That's, of like people have great places to work we create this is one I list,
5: list. I, this is one list i would proudly promote all day all night because i can also sense the enthusiasm of two authors really passionately talking about yeah. these people and that that to me says a lot. Uh, go ahead, Ray. Sorry, I'm interrupted. Oh no no I think
0: uh, it's great. I think we should have that list. And 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 you know a component of that list I think based on what I'm hearing and from the book that I kind of perused through, is the triple bottom line. So people that actually deliver on the triple bottom line would be one of the uh, criteria I think. So talk about the triple bottom line, what it is, why it's so important, and how it's impacting governments and public sector and kind of the way PPPs are set up.
1: And I could start on that. Uh, So the triple bottom line, of course, is when companies are pursuing a triple bottom line of which they're seeking to maximize financial, social, and environmental benefits. And um, we now have, in 2020, the Business Roundtable released a new statement on the purpose of a corporation 239 CEOs have committed to deliver long-term value to all their stakeholders, customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders. This is a huge change from back in the 1970s when people were really following the Milton Friedman uh, maximum, which was essentially that the business of of companies is really just to maximize shareholder value. And increasingly, they're looking at stakeholder value also. And internal pressure has also influenced everything from hiring practices to ethical supply chains. Uh, A recent Edelman study uh, showed that um, people, employees at companies expect their employer to act on issues such as climate change, racism and more of the embrace of such core values is increasingly important for, of course, Gen Z, millennials who wanna find a job that advances their values alongside their pocketbook. And so what this means for government is that previously you had government, nonprofits essentially focused on all of these societal problems. They didn't have a lot of help from business necessarily. And now you've got business heavily involved in this investing hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars into trying to solve societal problems. You go through every Fortune 500 company, they'll have a number of their big issues that they're really focused on trying to solve right now and putting a lot of effort into it. So government now has another major player combined with foundations and academia to help them in this search for answers to society's biggest problems we see this in climate change since the inflation reduction act was passed we've seen hundreds of billions of dollars now in investment in clean energy a lot of that might not have been there without the tax incentives and competitive grants and so on from ira Uh, but in the end it's going to be for the private sector that's going to have to invest the majority of the money into
2: reaching our climate goals and one of the things that's really important about this is that we've really advanced from the idea that somehow the government's just the, the master manipulator of all this to the point where in a lot of cases it can be even the, the private sector creating public value, that the idea of the good old days, that there would be the sharp division between the, the public and the private. Actually, one of the things that Friedman would would often try to promote is something that just doesn't work anymore, in part because it's very difficult to separate them if you wanted to, but we, if we uh, if we didn't en- rely on that, we'd end up missing out on the tremendous opportunities and, and climate change and efforts to try to, to deal with providing uh, better transportation services. If you look at what it's going to take to try to get somewhere in homelessness, case after case after case, we have either the, the, the government directing and trying to steer the services Or in other cases where the government's the junior partner and a large part of the leadership is coming from the private sector, which which we think is terrific. What we really have is a focus on trying to figure out how we can try to improve the quality of life of citizens around the country and around the world and understand that it's finding ways of, of weaving these different pieces together that are the keys to success.
5: Yeah, my my company's for founder for the last decade has talked about business being the greatest platform for change and yep. stakeholder capitalism. Uh, it's all about trust and 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 generosity. You talk about government agencies gaining greater citizen trust and ways perhaps they can measure trust. Can you talk about the importance of trust and how can we, in the spirit of radical transparency, measure trust and outcomes to? to gain more advocacy from, from citizens?
2: Yeah, that's, that's such a great and a critical question because if there's anything that we've discovered is one of the big problems in governments, not just in the US, but around the world, it's something that international organizations have focused on. It's the fact that we don't have sufficient trust in public institutions. and. In fact, there was a survey a couple of years ago that the Washington Post did, and it turned out that Congress was less popular than head lice. i literally the case of the survey, <laughs> believe it or not.
0: Or one for head lice. But,
2: but the yeah. challenge of trying to figure out, what, what do you do? And it's gonna be really hard to get people to change their minds about Congress, but it turns out that at the retail level, at the way in which people connect day by day, bit by bit, they may not trust government as a whole, but if they get that social security check, if they call for the fire department to arrive and they come and act effectively, if it turns out that they want to try to make sure that pothole gets filled, the kinds of things that they care about, if you make that work, make that work effectively, understand that the keys to success are developing the partnerships that are required to, to produce the results that we want, then bit by bit at the retail level it's possible brick by brick to be able to rebuild trust and that's what we think is ultimately most important not only because it can provide satisfaction to the people about the services they're getting and the money that they're spending but also we think that really the only way you can rebuild trust in government and the broader governmental institutions more broadly Don, in that, let, me, let me just uh, go
1: back a, a little bit to the societal impact and The private sector and just give an example of a partnership uh, that Deloitte and Salesforce have around workforce development. Uh, So in 2018, uh, Deloitte and Salesforce teamed up to create something called the Pathfinder program. Uh, It's a workforce development program centered around the vision that all individuals regardless of background or, or, or academic status could have access to the skills and support necessary uh, to support all the opportunities of the fourth industrial revolution. And if you go out on LinkedIn and so on, there's always a shortage of Salesforce developers and engineers yeah. and so on. Uh, and so what we did is we teamed up to create a free immersive training program uh, with over 200 hours of training and learning so anyone can learn in-demand skills, earn Salesforce credentials, make connections with the Trailblazer community, pursue Salesforce ecosystem jobs as administrators, developers, analysts, and so on. They they don't have to have a university degree. They just need to have these skills. And we've teamed up with a community college to, to do that. It's now taking place also in the US and the UK and deloitte and others will hire those individuals right out of the program and so this is all privately funded and you're getting people into great paying jobs with a lot of uh, upward mobility involved in them but it was created by the private sector but it's producing a lot of public value because it's getting people into these jobs of the present and the future in a new way that wasn't simply possible before. So it's a great micro example of where the private sector can produce public value. And it also helps both of our bottom lines because the need, the great demand for more people with these Salesforce skills in the economy. Yeah, we're definitely example. seeing that.
0: Models like Multiverse as well, they do that as well. Taking advantage of those job training programs are creating that. I was gonna say something snarky uh, from Don's comment, like the, the King Street <laughs> lobbyist approach would have been to denigrate head rights even more and drive everything <laughs> down. So we definitely don't wanna do that as well. But we are here with William Eggers and Donald Kettle, authors of Bridge Builders. It's a good guide and blueprint as to how we can actually bring everybody closer together and actually solve real world problems. You can catch the book on Amazon, and I think it came out in May, 2023. So, congratulations on the book!
5: Congratulations so on the book! Thank, Thank, you. You, so Thank much. you so much. Thank you, you in the green room. Cheers. I I love, I love the title, uh, Bridge Builders. Um, and I, you know, I have a 20 year old who's at, uh, a rising junior, so second half of her undergraduate uh, years uh, studies. And I wonder if. We're teaching bridge-building skills at universities. Uh, You know, are we teaching, you know, self-awareness, critical thinking, generosity, empathy, uh, and ability to think about societal issues and how what they're studying can help contribute to better neighborhoods, better communities? Um, You know, I, I hope they are. You know I hope I, they are I, too I,
0: I I have the same thing. I have a rising junior in school and and you know I think you know the challenges he sees is that you know there there isn't a lot of critical thinking on campuses today. There's not a lot of uh people aren't allowed to say what they want to talk about or have debates or get engaged in debates and I think you need that for bridge building to happen right to have a you know a good level of discourse and argument, understanding people's different views and what different sides are so so hopefully. Those things are yeah,
5: certainly tolerance and stick-to-itiveness grit. I mean, some grit. of these some yeah, hustle, some, some hustles hustle is useful. So. Yeah. When you're tacking tackling, for example, issue of homelessness, this is this is not, uh, you don't have a silver bullet. There's no light switch. It's, no, it's, it's years not just
0: a housing debt. issue. It's a mental health issue. It's a jobs right. issue. It's a drug treatment issue. Right. There's so many different aspects of that. I mean, it's crazy. So there are multifaceted so, problems that really require people to come together and and, and work together across, the, across different system, perspectives.
5: Systems thinking, complexity theories. I mean, there's so many process design. There's so many things you have to... Uh, you know, you have to learn and, and experience before you can, I think, be an effective bridge builder. But I got to tell you, when you, our last two guests, uh, you know, you could tell they were super passionate. Yes. You know, so I guess one of the key ingredients in this recipe of bridge building is man, you better love what you do uh, because these are hairy, ugly, difficult problems. And as a bridge builder, if you don't have that mental toughness, mental, physical, just toughness, i don't know how you can effectively be a bridge builder for long it could be a very short short career if you don't if you don't have that you know if you don't put in the reps at the gym and get get ready for what's ahead of you uh, can you summarize the show in, in a minute for us? Uh, there are four <laughs> guests. <here. laughs>
0: you know what? I think we, we're talking about massive movements in each one of these shows. Uh, we had the cloud revolution. And in the cloud revolution, what we saw was really this rush to get onto the cloud without a lot of thinking, a lot of organization, a lot of structure. And so we've got a lot of stuff in the cloud without, without a systems approach or systems thinking. And really what we think about in the FinOps revolution is really that alignment between technology, business, and value. And I think those things are important to actually create you know, some good, right? You, you don't want to waste energy. You want to waste money. You want to get a good benefit. You want to get business results. And these are these triple wins that, that people talk about. Well, the same thing's happening in, in our next set of guests as well. They were talking about William and uh, Don, Donald. Donald, we talking about how it's really important to actually create those win-win-wins. And, you know, the same thing has to be applied, right? You're, you're looking for outcomes that people can work towards. Uh, and, you know, some of them are disparate, just like in IT business and IT typically are at loggerheads. They have to work together to get something to happen. Well, the public sector, uh, government uh, itself has to work with private sector to actually achieve goals. And and sometimes there are philanthropies along the way that create those opportunities. Uh, Bridge building is is not an easy art. Uh, It's something that requires a lot of uh, fortitude, as you're talking about. And I think that fortitude is very, very important. And so I think it's great to see examples, of what those heroes are. I, I hope we create a list at some point. I think that would be very, pretty cool. I'm looking uh,
5: forward to the Deloitte yeah. 20, Deloitte 2024, bridge, bridge Builders 50. Yeah, uh, Bridge
0: Builders 50. I think that would be <laughs> awesome. You know, I starting. It might have to commission. be
5: hundred. I don't know. They named a lot of be, people. It might be
0: one for each country, right? After what yeah. they're going. So I, they're, they're I, global.
5: I, I am sure they would be Bridge Builders representing all geographies, all sectors. And 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 I think it would be it would be probably we can start
0: small with fifty. I think they probably (laughs) get about to get there. Uh, It'd be a good place to go. But hey, I think I think in each one of these, it's really about that that notion of these are complex problems, and when you bring teams together, we get a lot of success.
5: For sure, for sure. Okay, well, uh, next week we have an incredible roster. We have Kristen Frontenrose, president at Red Six International we have dr daniel ragsdale department of defense cyber tech security expert and we have dr david bray distinguished fellow stimson center and business executive for national security for those of you who watch the show regularly dr bray is one of our biggest minds that uh join us on a, a fairly regular basis to keep us in tune in terms of again big audacious issues that we're trying to solve uh, so, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone.
0: Happy Friday, everyone.